let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello and thanks for joining today. Today we'll hear for the first time how is digital identity in the African continent. So for that we have a special guest who is Grace Mutungu. Grace is a research fellow at the Center for IP and IT Law at Strathmore University in Nairobi, studying digital identity and society in Kenya. She has been involved in ICT policy advocacy for over 10 years and was most recently providing support during litigation in Kenya's digital ID case. Hello, Grace. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to, to have with you today in the show. So the first thing I would like to hear from you is how you ended in the world of digital identity. What was your journey? I just kind of stumbled upon it. I've been working in ICT policy work here in Kenya. And in 2017, we had general elections and... Um, Something about Kenya is that uh, people take their politics very seriously. For us in the ICT space, we were observing use of technology in the elections. And um, we observed that there was a lot of um, use of digital identity from two spaces. One is that politicians were using identity data from the voters register to target voters to vote for them. And then at the same time, there was also use of social media uh, for political discourse, for political mobilization. And later on, the news came out that uh, one of the political parties had actually engaged the firm Cambridge Analytica for, you know, voter targeting and some sort of political manipulation. So after that, we really got into the work of uh, advocating for a rights-based digital identity for data protection and for um, political accountability for use of, you know, digital identity data. And what would you say are today the, uh, the main challenges in digital identity that uh, the Kenya is facing? I'd say one big challenge is that there's been a lot of importation of ideas, technology, and hardware. So, for example, Kenya is uh, one of the countries in Africa that has always had a legal identity. In Kenya, it's the normal thing to walk around with a card, a national identity card. Mm -hmm. It's very normal to be asked for your card in order to access a building. This just started from a long time ago during the colonial period. And then over time, it's become normalized because of even the security challenges that we've had, the terrorism issues that we've had. So it's very normal to walk around with the paper identity. But there have been a lot of problems with the paper identity because that identity is also proof of citizenship or status, whether one is a resident or whatever else, or refugee. So there are people who historically have not been able to get this identity document and therefore they've been unable to access a lot of things from accessing buildings to employment to financial services because 
it is just so normal that you have to have identity document in order to access all those things. So now the biggest challenge for a country like Kenya, which already had national ID, is that digital ID is coming and it is targeted at those who already have identity documents. And then anybody who doesn't have identity documents is totally excluded from the new system. So that's Mm. one really big challenge. And then when you think about digital ID generally, for a fact, almost all African countries are implementing uh, digital ID. And by this, I mean state digital ID. The state wants to issue a legal digital identity to everybody. But for sure, Africans are not uh, largely participating in that economy, in that digital ID industry. So you find that for most of the countries, everything from the idea to the software that is used to the even algorithms for de-identification, everything is imported. I think the only one case we've seen is uh, in Ghana where the cards are printed locally, but generally there's a lot of importation, which is, if you think about it holistically, is, is quite dangerous because it means that for a while, these countries will be dependent on the suppliers of this technology. And it's even worse for countries that don't even insist on, um, on, on the companies coming to set up in their own countries so that there can be some local content. It means that people are not learning about making digital ID. We are not producers of digital ID. We are consumers of uh, digital ID technologies, which would really be a pity because it means that a lot of countries will miss out on the the economic, on the whole value chain, and they'll just be consumers and spending money on digital ID. That's true. The first challenge you, you mentioned is that moving to to digital ID made uh, by the government is mostly targeted to the ones who already have, a, let's say, the physical ID. So the question here is how much of this, of the Kenyan population doesn't have ID and, and what's, what's the reason why they don't have it? I don't have the numbers of those who do not have but should have. But for sure, some of the most problematic areas are border districts because, as you know, most of the borders in Africa were drawn uh, during the colonial period and they cut across, they separated communities that had the same cultural Mm -hmm. or linguistic traditions. So you find that, for example, in Kenya at the southern border, you find that there's a tribe called Maasai, some are in Kenya and others are in Tanzania. Same with at the northern border, Somalia, we have Somalis from Kenya and Somalis from Somalia. Same with the border with Uganda and so on. So the other thing that happened, for example, with Kenya is that development has been largely concentrated in the in the center, which is very far from the borders. And uh, these communities for a long time did not get identity documents. There's been a lot of underdevelopment. And so even um, registration of births is um, is least in those areas. So now the first issue that is always contested is their nationality. Because these communities just move across the border, you know, just the same way there's a, there's a wildebeest migration. 
which happens between Kenya and Tanzania. It's the same way uh, a pastoralist community like the Maasai would move uh, across the border depending on their um, uh, economic reasons and so on. So now with this uh, digital ID, you know, it's being tied to access to government services. That if somebody wants to get um, a passport, they first have to get a digital ID. But to get digital ID, you need to have gotten either um, a birth certificate, which is a... kind of records where you were born or a national ID, which is proof of your citizenship. So those historical problems like how the borders were drawn and also under development in areas that are far from the capital are some of the problems that have led to these communities not having those identity documents. We also have communities that have peculiar cases. One of the communities in Kenya that has a problem accessing um, national ID and is not a border community is the Nubian community. This is a community whose ancestors are found in South Sudan, but the Nubian community in Kenya, the ancestors were settled there by the British after the world wars. Um, the ancestors were were servicemen and women in the, um, in the world wars. So Administration after administration just denied them or puts barriers to them accessing ID. And so we have generations of uh, people who's, who can trace their ancestry over 100 years in Kenya, but they have different those documents. There are also Arabs at the coast who have uh, most of the problems are historical and most of the problems are tied to citizenship and uh, nationality. And that probably just goes to show us that we need to think about identity before thinking about application of digital technologies because the digital technologies are marketed as this uh, magic bullet that will solve problems of identity in Africa. But from Kenya, for example, you can see that this is not the case, that um, there are historical issues on citizenship and nationality that need to be sorted before digital identities is adopted. Yeah, I can get a feeling of the of this um, the situation, especially for these minorities that are in the in the borders. So yeah, you st- restart mentioning the digital ID that has been run in Kenya already for a project that is being already executed for a while. It's called Huduma Number ID. Could you tell us about that project? Yeah, so the project has been marketed as a Huduma Number. Huduma Number is Swahili for service number. So the idea is to collate all identity information in the different government databases, to harmonize all those databases and then to have a central identity database from which everybody is authenticated whenever they need to receive a government service. So the idea is that, for example, if you need to access the hospital using your national health insurance, that uh, when you present yourself, you'll be authenticated by the national health insurance people sending a request to the central database, which is being called the foundational database. The design from what we had during the court case is that every person would be issued with a card that has a unique number 
before a person is issued with a card, they would be enrolled, their biometrics would be enrolled in the system. Mm -hmm. Whenever they needed to access a service, they would provide their card and it would be authenticated in the foundational database. So for the case, there were three petitions that were consolidated into one. The contestations in that case, the first contestation is uh, exclusion and exclusion is a... is twofold. First, there are those communities I've told you about, the border communities and uh, the minorities who have a problem accessing paper documents, paper identity documents. So there is low birth registration in those areas. Most of them don't have the paper ID, the national ID. Therefore, they cannot be enrolled in the system. So that excludes them because the system will be um, a mandatory it will be mandatory to be authenticated before you can receive a government service. And then the other exclusion is that it wasn't well thought out, uh, this issue of biometrics. Uh, for example, the, um, the standard uh, biometrics they wanted to, or they've been collecting is um, uh, fingerprints and iris, and of course the face photograph for facial recognition, which really would work very well for maybe the middle class, but it wasn't properly thought out. And there's evidence from a previous system, the one for elections where a lot of people who do like casual laborers, people who work in the mines, uh, women who plate hair, women who wash clothes all day, people who work in the coffee farms, a lot of those people, their biometrics are not as legible. And so it was difficult to use biometric identification to verify them during the voter registration exercise. And so, yeah, that was one of the contentions, exclusion for those lacking identity documents and then for those lacking proper biometrics. And then, of course, the other big contestation was privacy and data protection because at the time when this system was rolled out, we did not even have a data protection act. So... The data protection law was enacted as the case was going on, but uh, still the law has not uh, been uh, operationalized. We we don't yet have the office that is supposed to oversee the law. We don't yet have that office in place. We don't yet have you know regulations that uh, give further details on the law. We don't have regulations on how data processors are going to register. Mm-hmm. We don't have regulations on how government is going to handle digital ID data. One other thing that was a privacy concern was the privacy of children because it was argued that children do not access services by themselves. And so collecting, you know, biometrics of children at six years, why would there be a need to authenticate children while they don't have legal capacity? And then, you know, another big contention, I think the biggest one was a collection of DNA data because the scheme also wanted to have a digital DNA data bank. Well, the court found that uh, this was quite invasive and it could not be allowed. So in a nutshell, that is what brought about the case. Basically, the issue of um, exclusion and also the issue of privacy. One other issue was participation. The people felt that this was such a substantive change in the governance of people that there was need to have like uh, a lot of information 
and uh, a really good space for the contestation and negotiation before the the system was uh, rolled out in full. Yeah, so that was the other argument or the other ground for that petition. Yeah, the court agreed on the issue of privacy. Um, it ruled out collection of DNA and uh, GPS data. And it also asked that um, the government first enact a framework for digital ID, a comprehensive and you know sufficient framework before collecting the data and processing it. That is where the process will be, will be going to next. The government has already started drafting uh, regulations. The petitioners are reviewing the judgment to also see how to engage with it and engage the government further. And we are waiting to see and waiting for, you know, even operationalization of the data protection framework so that you know, all the pieces can be in place before the system uh, is fully rolled out. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds like uh, this system has uh, somehow quite quite complex and ambitious. It sounds like there have been some problems of design. Since when this was started being designed? So how it was pushed to start rolling out, taking the identity of people uh, without having all these data protection regulations? So why when it started, it, it was very some years ago or was done just just recently well for digital id it started a while back by 2015 the government had already created a platform called um, iprs integrated population registry services that collates identity information from all the or at least a lot of the government databases that is on on one hand and then on the other hand it's also used to authenticate people using their national id number because like i told you we've had national id for a long time and it's very normalized it's a normalized thing um, to identify yourself as you access services However, it's not been universal in the sense of collecting data also from children. And as you know, Kenya is one of those countries, like many African countries, where majority of the population is children. And so one of the rationales for, for having um, this Huduma number was to actually have identity information on everybody, including children, including those whose births are not registered. And so IPRS has been like the umbrella thing, but also there have been uh, piecemeal policies and legislations that kind of force people to acquire some sort of digital ID. For example, a lot of government services are only accessible online and through another part of IPRS called eCitizen, which is now like the portal through which people can access services. So services like application for a passport or application for a driver's license or application for a visa for foreigners, all those things are done from that portal. Even business registration is done from that portal so the last I checked, there were around 250 services offered by government that are now exclusively online. A while back, we also started a policy that for children to access school, they have to produce a birth certificate. And this was, you know, kind of meant to make sure that everybody now registers 
the birth of their child, even if you're doing a late registration so that they can be able to access education. So yeah, those are examples of the piecemeal policies that were aimed at, you know, getting everybody to get some sort of identity document. While people were going to get these identity documents, what the government had done is that it had migrated all its services to digital. Mm -hmm. So they were creating digital ID. The only piece that was missing in a very universal way across the country was uh, biometrics. This system was uh, being implemented to collect biometric data on everybody. There were already a number of e-government uh, services already running for, by different institutions. And that's one of the, the reasons that was pushed to have this collection of uh, personal data done during last year. So could you tell us also what was your specific involvement during this, this case in the last months? I was supporting the petitioners, you know, providing um, some research and so on. I also gave testimony on the issue of uh, children and digital identity. I'm of the view that there needs to be more special protection for children because once their data is collected, it's very difficult to undigify it or undigitize it. Once the data is collected, it, it becomes very shareable. It becomes very interesting even for analysis. They are still developing their capacity to interact with the law. Yet, when so much information about them or data about them is being collected, it could be used to make decisions that have legal effect. For example, the education system, the idea, it's called National Education Management Information System. The idea is to keep recording the child's uh, journey at every step. And so there was space to collect, you know, some objective factual information like, you know, the age of the child, whether the child proceeds from one class to another. But then there's also space for subjective information like the performance of the child, the reasons for, you know, good or bad performance, you know. So Grace, what would you say, what was the main lesson learned from this project? I think one lesson learned is that digital ID is uh, the new, or it's like a way of organizing society. And so all other African countries that are in um, different points of their digital ID journey definitely need to look at this case and understand some of the contestations that there were and avoid them if possible. Because if we think about digital ID, in that way, as a sovereignty issue, sovereignty of the people, people deciding or people participating in making a decision on how they are going to be governed. It means that um, the questions of design, yeah, even conceptualizing and designing the digital ID system should be done in a participatory way, should be done in the most open way. People should have as much information as possible about the new systems and their role in the new system. Once their, their data is collected, they should have as much agency as possible. They should still be able to 
view their data. They should still be able to know when their data is um, used, especially when used for other purposes than what it was collected for. And also, if the same people also want to analyze their data, it should be possible for them to, you know, analyze their data because the design of these systems has an underlying assumption that the only entity that is interested in having collective data is the government. But there are also people or groups of people who may have an interest in such data. And so a big lesson would be that it's it's a high time we started thinking about the conditions under which groups who wanted to view such data would be able to view it, how we can democratize data so that it's not such a valuable commodity that can only be accessed by the most elite, that it can become something as accessible as how statistical data is normally released to to everybody who wants to use it to better understand their society. Yeah, that's correct. One of the things you say is the they need more participation from everybody in, in the society because the people who went to enroll were, of course, they trust that it is for the good, they are going to have the digital identity. Uh, but yeah. it depends how it was designed by the government um, was maybe not the, the best way to do it. So I would also like to hear from, this is mostly from the public sector, if there's something in the digital identity in the private sector or that is working and something especially if there are some some good uh, success successful cases successful stories in in data identity in Kenya or in the region so in the private sector i think they are generally further ahead than the government in fact in this government project one of the objectives of the government was also to centralize even private data for example one of the good examples, I think, is just the mobile phone number because that was some democratization of a service that was very was preserved for very few. Back in the day when there were landlines, landlines was, were for such few people. Mm. But now mobile phones, I think, I forget what the figures are, but we are over 80%. Um, we have an over 80% concentration, I mean, penetration rate of uh, mobile phones in the country. How it becomes uh, like, a, uh, not like, but a sort of digital ID is that the mobile phone is unique. And at the beginning, it was just for communication purposes. But now, you know, Kenya, we don't have a national addressing system. You just have to depend on people to give you directions, especially after you are off the main road. But with the mobile phone, this has really changed because you can give somebody maybe a delivery service. You just need to give them the general area and then also give them the mobile phone number of where you want it delivered. Mm -hmm. And they'll be able to contact that person until they get to that particular space. So that has been quite a good, uh, and it's become so normal that sometimes we forget that this is the use of digital identity. And now a further use of that um, uh, mobile phone has been in financial inclusion. People were able to, to use that identity to send and receive money. And at the beginning, you did not even need um, a bank account. You did not even need a national ID in order to, to use mobile money. Now it has changed with the, 
involvement of the government, the policies changed and they require, they tied it to the national ID. But even with that, I mean, it's such a revolutionary thing that uh, people can send and receive money even when they don't have bank accounts. And with the way uh, our society is organized in Africa with the whole um, rural urban migration, the reason why uh, a service like M-Pesa is, is, is such a, a big deal is because um, it enables people to still connect to their rural people when they're in urban areas and vice versa. Now it has even moved to digital credit. People are getting um, loans through their mobile phones. It is not all positive. There are very many issues that need to be resolved in that area because the digital uh, lending depends a lot on um, analysis of mobile data. Grace, any other successful story in about digital identity in Kenya? Well, I'd say that uh, government is also something that could be a success story if well applied because it takes services closer to the people. It also creates employment. There's a lot of people who access e-government services through intermediaries, which is, I think, most of the people who don't have the requisite digital literacy will access uh, e-government services through intermediaries. So if only these uh, issues were being looked at holistically, for example, the government uh, acknowledged that it's intermediaries and their role and um had mechanisms to ensure that, for example, cost issues are looked into, then e-government makes way more sense than going physically to government offices to receive services, especially thinking about the size of Kenya and the role of government in a lot of day-to-day uh, -day services that everybody needs. So there are things that need to be corrected, but definitely e-government is a, is a very good use case for digital ID. In fact, even in the Uduma number case, the contention was not about digital ID per se. The contention was on issues like centralizing digital ID and how that um, creates, you know, capacity for surveillance. But as far as improving of services is concerned, that is something that everybody can see as something that will be beneficial to most of the society. Sure, sure. I'm sure that in, in, the, in the future, this, this project, Huduma Namba will be uh, able to meet the, the needs that the Kenyans have today. So what would you say in the future, what is your prediction for, for Kenya's digital identity in the, in the years to come? I think for sure there will be a lot of contestations, especially where rights and uh, nationality issues are concerned. Those ones have to be resolved. Uh, so for sure there'll be a lot of contestations. And then something else I predict is that as soon as we have a critical mass of Kenyans with all the knowledge that is required, we'll see a twist in digital ID that was unexpected from all the vendors and all the uh, software dealers who are importing these things from somewhere. So I think we are likely to see something organic and homegrown that will surprise everybody who is so intent on forcing centralized digital ID down our throats. I say this because when mobile phones came to Kenya, I don't think anybody had imagined that there would ever be a mobile money thing. Mm -hmm. But 
even when they started, I remember like way before mobile money came, people would use uh, mobile money airtime as a way to send money to each other. So you'd send mobile money airtime and then that person would be able to either sell that mobile money airtime to other people mm-hmm. and therefore get money or something like that. And this is what eventually changed to become, okay, let's even have mobile money where you can send money directly mm-hmm. instead of sending airtime. And then the person has to try and convert that airtime into money. So I foresee something similar to that happening. Kenyans for sure are very innovative and they'll find a way to organically find a digital ID being used in a, in a different way that wasn't anticipated and probably in a, in a much better way that serves the people. Yeah, looking forward to hearing in the future the innovation in digital identity that come from Kenya. So I, I will ask you this question I ask to all our guests. If you can give us a tip, a practical advice for anybody to protect our digital identities. For me, because I'm an activist, I think uh, mm-hmm. I keep telling everybody that never imagine you have nothing to hide. Mm. So as much as you may think that these privacy activists are being too noisy with their gospel of um, that we need personal privacy and data protection. I keep saying, no, they're not being too noisy. Never imagine you have nothing to hide because even when you have nothing to hide, there are people who are your type. And, you know, um, digital ID is not only about personal identifiable information, but it's also about information of people who are like you. I think the term they're using now is demographic identifiable information. So the tip is to care about your privacy because your privacy is also other people's privacy. Oh, yes. Yeah, could I agree more? Thanks a lot for this interview. Grace has been truly enlightening because uh, some people li- like us, many people are listening to this podcast who are working into digital identity, data protection and building, many of us building products or systems. It's important to know how things work in, in like in Kenya and other countries where we don't hear too much about. So it's, it's, it's very, very useful, very many reflections to, to know. Please let us know how we can find you on the net. What are the best ways for that? On Twitter, I am at B-O-M-U. I'm also on the CIPIT website. CIPIT is C-I-P-I-T dot O-R-G. And uh, we put out a lot of information about issues that are going on especially in the African technology scene. And we have a whole section on uh, digital ID and data protection. Excellent. Again, thanks a lot, uh, Grace. It was a pleasure meeting you, talking with you, and all the best. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time, 